Let me add my good morning. My name is Tom Ricks, and I'm one of the pastors here at Green Tree. It's great to see all of you. Thank you, Bethy. Uh, We take a video and we film the service, and so all of you that clapped when she said we have 200 more kids, you'll be getting your assignment um, (laughs) via email this afternoon, and we're sure you'll do very well. Seriously, having 200-plus children that are in attendance on Sunday means that you have closer to over 300 that are actually on the rolls, uh, because not everybody's here every Sunday. So we have a lot of children. We need a lot of help. Uh, And Green Tree has had a strong tradition historically of having a wonderful children's ministry. So people like Beth and her her current team that work with her. So we'd love for you to to jump in. I was... uh, Doing my my favorite hobby, uh, not golf. That's my uh, my second favorite hobby. Driving Uber on Friday late afternoon, and I picked up this couple on the kind of west side of Kirkwood, and we were going downtown, and we we're driving down Manchester Road, and I could tell about a mile or two down Manchester Road they were trying to figure something out because they were kind of talking amongst themselves, and, and finally she said, "We know who you are. You are you're the pastor of the new church we're going to." And I said, well, maybe I am. What's your new church? <laughs> and they said, Green Tree Community Church. I said, never heard of it. Um, no. I said, yes, I am. I'm the pastor of your new church. And before I could say anything else, I'm, and if, there, if you raise your hand, if you're here and I was your driver, you can account to this. Literally, the next thing they said was, our children love Green Tree Community Church. They're a little, I think, like a two-year-old and a five-year-old. And they said, we just, we love Green Tree. So... I happen to say, well, kind of the, like the sermons are okay too, aren't they? Are they? <laughs> um, but all that being said, the reason we have a strong children's ministry is because we have great volunteers, people that love kids. So we hope that you will give that very serious consideration because our children's ministry is growing and we, and we need lots of, of helpers. Uh, we're going to continue this morning in our series on the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. We're actually going to be in the Old Testament this morning, we'll, we'll read our theme verse, which is Matthew 23, 23 first, but then we're going to be studying this morning uh, in Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to look at the, uh, verses 12 through 20, so you can turn there in your Bible or just a minute. They'll be on the screen. Have you ever opened your refrigerator and stood there kind of trying to decide what you want? Now, do I want a ham sandwich or do I want this or that? And after the door's been opened for maybe 20 or 30 seconds, you kind of go... Something doesn't quite smell right in there. It all looks okay, but there's something somewhere back on the third shelf that somebody didn't put a lid on four or five days ago. Have you ever had that experience where you know, kind of dig around and go, oh, there's cottage cheese that expired you know, last year. I, uh, about, about, I don't know, three weeks ago, I had some sushi from the store and I ate most of it, but I put it back in the refrigerator and just this won't cost you anything extra. You should always... The day you buy the sushi, eat the sushi. Um, so it was, it was tucked back in the refrigerator, and a few days later, I discovered that I had saved some sushi. It just didn't smell right. You know, you just knew that no matter how good it looked to you, there was something in there that it just, it just had, had worn out its welcome. Uh, in Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, Marcellus is talking to Horatio, and he's, he's bemoaning the fact of, of the cultural collapse of, of the nation. And he says, there's something rotten in the state of Denmark. Now, maybe you've heard that phrase before. Maybe you took English lit and you read that play. But there's something 
rotten in the state of Denmark means that there, there's something that is just not right, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. The passage we're going to look at this morning is going to challenge us to look at our own lives and ask the question, is there something rotten in the state of Denmark? Let's start with Matthew chapter 23. Uh, this is the theme verse. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of his day. He's talking to, to people that claim to believe in God, uh, and he's fussing at them because he says this, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint, dill, and cumin.'" Those are the little tiny spices. Like, you're oh so careful to keep the, the, the least degree of the law, right? "'But you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness.'" These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And then our passage for today in Isaiah chapter 1. God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he says the following. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken." This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we have worshiped you in song, uh, lifting up our voices and our hands, demonstrating to you our, our vocal praise of your, your name and your faithfulness and your goodness. Father, we have worshiped you in, in greeting one another and in just offering a, a friendly good morning, hello. Father, we're worshiping you as we pray and we seek your intervention in our lives, your presence in our lives, your power in our lives. Father, in our prayer, we are acknowledging that, that we are weak, but you are the strong one. That we come to you in faith and trusting that you will redeem your people and that you will show us the pathway that you would have us walk. Father, we come to you now to study your word, to submit our intellect and our minds to what you want to teach us. Lord, we hear our own opinions and the, the opinions of humanity all week long, it is good for us to be together and to ask, what is God saying? Because, Lord, you hold the keys of truth. So, Father, we pray that you'd protect us from my opinions, that you would protect us from man's thoughts, and that you would give us your eternal truth. If we don't have that, Lord, we will be lost. Father, forgive me for my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way of your teaching this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's our, our sermon just wrapped up in one little sentence this morning. Our worship of God must include lives that actively care for the oppressed, the widow, and the fatherless. 
Our worship of God must include lives that actively care for the oppressed, the widow, and the fatherless. Now, if you look at that sentence carefully, you, you may kind of begin to wonder, how does care for others fit into worship? Isn't what we're doing right now worship? And that would be one of the things that we're going to consider this morning is that God's word, the definition of worship in God's word is much more expanded than our notion of what we do on Sunday morning for an hour, hour and a half, uh, where we come together to what we call worship. God is going to teach us this morning, if we're willing to listen, that worship is kind of a 24-7 way of life. It's not just something that we do a little bit here and a little bit there. And because it's a way of life, it must include caring for the weakest among us. I have five observations in this text this morning that I think will we'll bring this, uh, the sermon and the sentence kind of to bear on our hearts and our minds. The first is this, that before God kind of gets into the nitty gritty of this through, through the prophet Isaiah, he offers a clarification. In verse 12, he says this, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Now we'll come back to the trampling in just a minute, but notice what God is saying here. He's saying that worship belongs to him alone. You're coming before me. You're coming into my house. You're not coming into your house. You're not coming uh, before one another. I'm not coming before you. You're coming before me. God wants to make sure we understand that he is our focus, that worship belongs to God and God alone. Now, I can worship a lot of other things in my life. I can worship my reputation. I can worship my belongings. I can worship my success. I can worship uh, money. I can worship a lot. I can worship my children. I can worship a lot of different things. I can worship the St. Louis Blues. I hope I'm still thinking fondly of them at about five o'clock this afternoon, right? You can worship. I see that Predators t-shirt. You can worship. You might not get out of here alive. You better. (laughs) You worship a lot of things, but the only person that deserves your worship is God. He's the only one. And so he clarifies that for us right off the bat. You don't come to worship on Sunday to get, you come to give. Now that's a little odd for us in Western culture because we think it's all about us. We think it's about what we should get. And I know when you leave here and you drive home, you'll probably chit chat about how was your Sunday school class or how was the sermon or how was music. And what you're asking is, what did I get out of it? Did I enjoy it? Did I grow? Did I learn? And those aren't bad questions in and of themselves. But the primary question I should ask is, what did I give God? Did God receive my heart? Did he receive my genuine praise? Did he receive my prayers? Did, did I give to God the worship that is due his name. This verse also points out the fact that worship is tied to everyday life. He asks this question, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? If you, and the notion there is that what they've been doing on the outside of the temple, they're bringing in and polluting the inside of the temple. So when we built our house, my, my wife Cindy did a lot of smart things when we built our house, but one of the smartest things that she did is when you come in our side door, which is kind of the door where everybody comes and goes. We don't go out the front door very much. We come in and out the side door. There's a little room there when you first walk in and it's called the mud room. And the mud room has the, you know, the hard tile floor and it's got three little lockers with even little locker spaces above it. We had three kids and when we built the house, they were in, I think, middle school and upper grade school and, and just starting kindergarten. But they would go outside and they'd play. And in wintertime, they'd go outside and they'd play. And in the spring, they'd go outside and play. Summer. And a lot of times, they'd get mud, they'd get ice, they'd get snow on their boots, on their shoes, whatever. And they'd come in and mom would always say the same thing, stop in the mud room and take that off. 
right? Because the next room you move into has hardwood floors. And we don't want the mud in there. We don't want the snow in there. We don't want the ice melting in there because you don't want to bring what's outside, the pollutants outside, inside. What God is saying to the people of Israel is you're polluting the formal worship of me by not worshiping me in your daily lives. Life and worship are completely bound together and cannot be pulled apart. God does not ignore it when there's a disconnect in my life between my words of worship and the way I live when I leave this building. So God is gracious enough to give us a clarification. Secondly, God offers through Isaiah the presenting issue. What's wrong here? What's going on? What is this trampling of the courts? And as you look at verses 13 through 15, you see some incredibly strong language. Bring no more vain offerings. Your incense is an abomination to me. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your appointed feast, my soul hates. They're a burden. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes, right? And even though you pray to me, I won't listen. I mean, this is incredibly strong, strong language. This is pure loathing. Now, think about this for a minute. I, there aren't a whole lot of things in my life that I absolutely hate. I mean, there are a lot of things I don't particularly care for, right? And my brother and sister were in town last night, and we were sitting around the dinner table, and we were talking about the old uh, days of the Jolly Green Giant asparagus out of the can, right? We don't particularly like that. I don't spend my days loathing asparagus, right? Now, Brussels sprouts, maybe. The Chicago Blackhawks, Absolutely. You got to think hard to come up with something that you, you look at it and you hate it. And God looks at his people worshiping him while living a completely different lifestyle. And he says, I cannot abide it. I cannot stand it. This is incredibly strong language that we need to understand. Why is it that God says this is an abomination? I cannot endure it. My soul hates it. Well, look at verse 13. He gives it to us very clearly. It says this. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. It doesn't say iniquity in the solemn assembly or iniquity with the solemn assembly. It says, and in other words, what God says is I see how you live and you're living a life of iniquity. You're living a life of sinfulness and you're doing it on purpose. It's not like you're making a mistake every once in a while and you're going, oh, I can't believe I did that and confessing my sins and coming for forgiveness and grace. It's I'm intentionally, I am wantonly living a different life other than what I speak. And then when I come to the solemn assembly, I make sure I'm in church on time. God says those two things can't possibly go together. You want to know what the issue is? The issue is your life doesn't match up with your words. You're living hypocrisy. You claim to worship God but your life is exactly the opposite. And then in verse 16 and 17, he brings us my third observation here. Is he brings us to the heart of the matter. Well, what's, what's this opposite living we're doing? Why, what is it that we're saying, but, but we're going in a completely different direction? Verses 16 and 17. We'll come back to 16 in a few minutes. Wash yourselves, make yourself clean. But he begins to introduce it. Remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes cease to do it. Well, what kind of evil are we doing? Learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. God is not correcting the people of Israel through Isaiah or you or me this morning for that matter about our vertical relationship with him in this passage. That's not what he's, he does that in other places, 
But that's not his main concern. What he's saying is this relationship is being broken because you don't care for the weakest among you. Because you have no heart for those who are being oppressed. You're allowing them to be treated in a way that is completely filled with injustice. And they're being trampled on and you're not lifting a finger to help. And the heart of the matter is injustice. Anytime you see that word oppression in scripture, almost every time, almost 100% of the time, it's speaking about the poor. Not 100%, but all, and in this case it is. It's talking about how poor people are taken advantage of by those who are in power. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. These are the weakest and the most vulnerable among us. And they're not being protected by those who claim to love God. And in God's definition, that is iniquity. So we're dealing with two potential sins in our lives this morning, brothers and sisters. And we may have some of both, or maybe just one, and maybe not the other. But we're dealing, one, with the sin of inactivity. When I see something going on, I say, well, I can't make a difference. I'm just one guy. And I stand idly by and I allow something to happen, assuming that I can't fix it. And I claim to love God. And I've been protected by God actively through the cross of Christ. But I don't lift the finger to help my fellow man. That is iniquity. Or I'm actively involved in oppression of someone else. I am actively living my life in a way that brings damage to someone else who doesn't have the power to stop it. I would say perhaps for most of us, the question this morning is inactivity, but I want us to be careful not to skip right to that. Because true worship of God is thankful and it's filled with a humble heart that understands what God has done to us and the grace he's given us. And then that our life mirrors that understanding. That's why I said it's not just about what Isaiah is saying. It's not just about when you come together for your solemn assembly, but it's how we're living our lives. James puts it this way in the New Testament. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To go to church every Sunday, to put money in the offering plate, to pray all the time. doesn't say that. Those are all good things. But what does it say? To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. To care for the people around you that are having trouble caring for themselves. He gives an example in chapter 2. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you who claims to believe in God says, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? See, the heart of the matter is really true worship. It's my humble heart, my understanding of, of how God has redeemed me, coupled with my life, so that my life actually mirrors the grace that I, I claim to believe. But friends, if you're going to walk down this pathway, let me tell you, and, and many of you already know this, this is not an easy thing. Our world is broken in so many different ways. It can almost be overwhelming to step back and say, where on earth could I make a difference? I know that this is an incredible challenge for us, and yet it's one we must take seriously. We must have eyes that see the pain around us and step in the breach and begin to be used by God. But it is challenging, and it is time-consuming, and a lot of times it's met with failure. There are people that, that you may try to help and it just doesn't work out. If, if everybody in this room, God applies this passage to our hearts this morning and we go out of here like gangbusters and we begin to live in this way through the power of God, it's not that we're going to be able to write a book 15 years from now and tell about all the success stories. Because I guarantee you there'll be many more tears than there will be joy. But it doesn't mean that we're not called to it. Being hard doesn't mean we ought not do it. 
Uh, my office is back in that corner of the building, and it, and it looks out over the roof of where you drop the kids off downstairs. So um, if you drive up in the lower level and drop the kids off, there's a little overhang, and that I, my, desks look, my window looks out at that. And there's a Frisbee out on that roof, and it's been there for three weeks, and it's a green Frisbee. And every day I come in, the Frisbee looks at me, and it laughs at me, and it taunts me, and it says, I'm going to be up here until you're retired. <laughs> because it's not easy to get up on this part of the roof. You'd have to go out and get a big, tall extension ladder, which you don't like to climb on anyway, and you'd have to climb up there and get it, and you're not going to do it. And you could tell one of your staff members, but they're not going to go up there and do it either. So I'm going to be here probably long after you're dead and buried. And it just continues to mock me day after day after day, all right? I guarantee you by next Sunday that Frisbee's coming down, all right? <laughs> but it's hard. It's time-consuming, right? When you walk out of this door, no matter how much conviction you're under of the Word of God, it's not going to make it smooth sailing every day. There are going to be challenges. But the heart of the matter is the oppression and, and the lack of care for those who are vulnerable. And God says, you can't worship me and not, and not care on that level. That's the heart of the matter. The fourth of five is that God then doesn't just stop there with, with kind of the rebuke, but he gives us some corrective measures. He gives us a pathway to follow that will be more in line with his grace and his mercy. And the first thing he talks about is repentance, right? Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove evil deeds, uh, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Now you look at that, you might say, well, look, there's work salvation right there. If you do enough good stuff, God will love you. The wash and that remove has nothing to do with any physical activity on your part or my part. That has to do with our mental framework. That has to do with us saying, God, you're right and we're wrong. That's repentance. The first step in repentance is acknowledging that I need to get cleaned up. Is saying, God, you're right. I guarantee you there are probably some of us sitting here this morning going, Tom, I'm just not buying it. I've never oppressed anybody in my life, and, and I'm not convinced that inactivity is, is wrong in and of itself. I don't live close to somebody that has that problem. That's not my fault. I, I, I promise you there, there got to be some of us that are sitting here going, I'm not buying it. And that's okay. Just, just be polite and hang with me for a few more minutes, right? But then you can't wash yourself. You can't remove. You, you can't repent of that. You can't repent of something you don't think is sin. Repentance is acknowledging my culpability and being willing to be moved by God in a different direction. And that's where God gives us these three corrective steps. The first thing he says is cease to do evil. Cease meaning a decisive abandonment of my current practices. It means whether it's active oppression or inactive, just not caring on behalf of the defenseless. Both of those are things, thought patterns that I need to stop, that I need to ask God to take my thinking in a different direction. I need to cease. I need to move and abandon my current practices. The second thing that God calls us to in this pathway is to learn to do good. So you take the, you take the bad part out, you got to replace it with something, Right? Well, what do you replace it with? You learn to do good. The development of my mind, I need to think like a worshiper of God 24-7. It's not when I walk in and out of this, of this room on Sunday morning. It's my life. My life is a life of worship, and that's something that needs to be learned. I can tell you that this morning. You can write it down in your notes, but if you don't go back and think about it, if you don't go back and study the Word, if I don't remind myself of my own personal study of the world, I'll forget. We need to, we need to learn 
through, through a development of our minds to think the way God would have us think. This Thursday, when our, our little Thursday email comes out that kind of gives you what's going on at Green Tree Community Church, one of the things in that email will be a resource list for you. And on that resource list, there'll be some talks you can listen to if you like to listen instead of read. There'll be some books that you could go out and pick up and read some books. There'll also be some articles. If you're not a book person, you're like, yeah, give it to me in a little bit shorter framework. We'll have all of that for you all on this topic because we all want to collectively as a congregation learn together what it means to live lives of worship that care for the weakest among us. Cease, learn, and then seek. Seek justice. A new set of objectives, a new set of priorities. A.J. Motyer, who's a very famous uh, theologian who, who wrote a commentary on Isaiah, said this, Come to a decision and determine authoritatively what is right. It's right for God to love me enough to tell me to care for the poor. It's right for God to correct my inactivity. It's right for God to, to point out my hypocrisy when I come here and I offer words of worship and then my life doesn't reflect one ounce of it throughout the week. And I need to understand that that is right. And I want a new set of objectives. I want a new set of priorities in my life. How will I know if that begins to take shape? Because this is a journey. It doesn't happen overnight. How do I know if I'm growing in discipleship and I'm moving in the right direction? Well, look at, at verse 17. What else it goes on to say? Correct oppression. When I see oppression, whether it's somebody picking on somebody at my school or it's, 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 I'm a lawyer and I see the fact that 71 out of 83 municipalities in St. Louis get tax money or money for their budget off of uh, traffic violations. And the people that are hurt the worst on traffic violations are the poorest of the poor, right? I could maybe, maybe do something about that in one municipality. I could maybe help one or two people. When you begin to see what's wrong and you begin to say, I can go in that direction and I can do something, you'll know that you're seeking justice actively, that you are practicing what you say you believe. Bring, plead, and all these, all these opportunities we have, bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Kind of it all that could be summed up in who, who's, the, who's the little guy you're fighting for? And I, I don't mean that in a rude way, right? But who's the person that can't help themselves in your life that, that you could do something about that? You and I probably can't solve even the problems of Kirkwood, much less anything beyond that, right? But there's probably one person that God's put in your life, maybe in your school, Maybe in a class that you're in together. Maybe it's in your business. Maybe it's somebody that lives across the street from you. Maybe it's a, it's a widow here at Green Tree that doesn't have any family that lives in St. Louis and just needs a friend to, to be close to, to just every once in a while check on. There could be a lot of different ways to apply this, but where's the person that you're fighting for? Because God fought for you on the cross. We need to be able to answer that question. And Jesus gives us the opportunity, cease, learn, seek. How will I know if I'm ceasing and learning and seeking? Because I'll begin to correct. I'll begin to, to, to bring help to the Father. So I'll be, begin to plead the case of the widow. And maybe just one life will be different because of that. And then fifthly, not only does Isaiah offer us corrective measures, but there's also a judgment that's rendered. In verse 18, 
There's a verse, I, I'm so glad, I, I wish you could have seen the second graders in our first service doing, they did the books of the Bible and their memory verses. This is a verse that I, that I learned at a fairly young age. Uh, it says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. I want to stop there for a second because the picture I've always had in my mind until recently is that God's saying, let's sit down and have a cup of coffee. Let's chat. It's kind of the woman at the well. Hey, could you give me a drink of water and let's, let's have a conversation? Or, or Nicodemus comes to him at night and they're sitting on the back porch and they're just chit-chatting, right? Well, let's talk about this injustice thing. That's not the language in the original Hebrew. What's in the original Hebrew is a courtroom scene. And the judge has listened to all of the evidence and he's heard all of the arguments and he's rendered his decision and now he pounds the gavel on the, on the bench and he says, will the defendant please rise? I'm going to tell you how this is going to turn out. And the judge has the authority to do that. So here's what God is saying authoritatively to you and me. And what he's saying by reason together is listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Your sins are like scarlet. Your life is filled with innocence, blood, and it's red like crimson. In other words, you're guilty. Nation of Israel, you're guilty. People of 21st century America that attend Green Tree Community Church, on some level, we are guilty. And if we don't acknowledge that, there's, there's no place to go, right? But God says authoritatively, when we worship and speak one way and live another way, there is the guilt. We must listen carefully. Now, what does the judge normally say after he says guilty? Now, here's how many years you get, right? Or here's the fine you have to pay. Or here, here's the penalty, but that's not where this judge goes, Right? Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as wool, as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. What God is saying is, I have for you mercy and forgiveness. You must acknowledge your sin. There is no forgiveness unless there is repentance. But once you acknowledge your sin, once you acknowledge that there's innocent blood on your hands, so to speak, and you see your need for grace, it's there in abundance for you. The beautiful thing about the cross of Christ is that it offers forgiveness to anybody and everybody who calls on the name of the Lord. So if you're sitting this morning, you're like, I really haven't helped anybody. I really have been inactive. I don't want you to leave feeling guilty, right? Because you are guilty, but guess what? So am I. But you need to leave understanding that the forgiveness of God is there for you. And the forgiveness of God so overpowers your sin that you can't even tell it was there in the first place. You know, I love these ads that show like the shirt with the stain on. It's always a white shirt, right? It's never like a blue shirt. It's always a white shirt. It's got this terrible stain. And if you use this particular product, man, look, it gets the whole stain out. Where here's the other product and it's still got like the little brown spot on it, right? The, 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 the mercy of God removes the stain of sin completely. It's as if it was never there. But we confess, we listen to the judge, we acknowledge he's right. And we call on him for forgiveness and mercy and grace. How do we know if that's genuine? How do we know if, if we really embrace that and, and, and we really know that God is transforming our lives? It's kind of like, you ever, I always kind of chuckle at a parent who, you know, the two little Johnny and Susie got at it with each other and they've been battling and they're misbehaving and they're, but they're treating each other badly. And, you know, mom or dad pulls them apart and then they say, you know, I, you started it by pulling, taking their toy and you, so you say you're sorry right now for taking that toy, right? What little child looks at their sibling at that moment and says, I am so sorry. Thank you, mother, for pointing out the sin in my life. I'm going to turn over new leaf and be a new four-year-old. It will never happen. It, uh, no, because little people are just like big people. I'll tell you what they do because I know what I do. Sorry. 
You don't mean it? If that's sincerity, you know, I don't know what to say, right? You say it because you have to. God's not compelling you to confess your sins this morning. He's asking you to. He's asking you to see the genuineness of your sin so that you can experience the genuineness of his presence in your life. How will you know if that genuineness is there? Well, look at verse 19. If you're willing, there's your mind and your heart. If you're thinking and emotionally connected to what God has said, and now you're moving in a new direction, you'll be obedient. You'll eat the good food land. In other words, you're not going to be perfect. You're not going to do everything exactly right, but you're going to go, no more am I going to be inactive. No more am I going to sit idly by. If I see something I can do, I'm going to do that. That's a willing spirit, and that's actively working its way out in your life of worship 24-7, in my life of worship. But there's another choice you have, and that's to ignore what the judge has said. To, to pretend like he doesn't have the authority and go your merry way. In verse 24, if you refuse, there's the, there's the mind, there's the heart. Nope, not going to do it. And rebel, there's the activity. You shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. You're going to get what you've been dishing out, <laughs> is another way to say it. There'll come a time, maybe not in this world, it may be in the next, but there'll come a time when there's an accounting. And God says, you hurt innocent people. You hurt them by your inactivity, you hurt them by your activity, and you never confessed that, and you never came to me for grace and mercy, although it was freely offered and freely extended. You refused and you rebelled. Now you got to pay. Brothers and sisters, you don't ever be in that spot because that's for eternity. And I love the fact that God cares so much about us that he tells us ahead of time what the judgment will be because it gives us a chance to go in a different direction. It gives us a chance to embrace his clarification that worship is my life. It's not just what I do on Sunday morning, that there is some hypocrisy in my life and our lives collectively, that, that we don't love the, 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 the most needy among us as, as well as we should, but that there are corrective steps that God gives us so that we can confess our sin and have our hearts be white as snow and we can begin to reflect and look at the world through the lens that God does. So what do we do with this this morning? It's uh, typically in a sermon, I'll give a lot of, I try to give a good bit of application at the end, and I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to try to, to go in a little different direction. I will say this. I think it would be really wise for all of us uh, who want to follow God to maybe take this passage home and read it a little bit more this afternoon, maybe by yourself or maybe with your spouse or maybe with your entire family. And there might be some time to confess sin. And to acknowledge that, you know, we haven't done everything we should. Uh, following up to that, I like those three words, cease, learn, and seek. I think there's some application there. But beyond that, I, there's so many different ways that this could be applied. You know, we have ministries like Hope Unlimited all among us. We, we have lawyers in our congregation that could get involved in, in, in the court system. Um, you know, we have Vacation Bible School coming this summer, and there, I'm sure there are a lot of single working moms in our neighborhood that might need some help getting their kids to VBS. And I could have put a laundry list on the screen of all kinds of different ways we could help, but I want to refrain from doing that because I believe the first place is just for, for you and God and for me and God to, to have a serious conversation about my heart, right? Say, Lord, show me where I'm inactive, show me where I'm sinning, move me in a different direction for your glory and for the good of your kingdom. Our worship of God must include lives that actively care for the oppressed and for the widow and for the fatherless. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it challenges us. Uh, We 
prefer to be comfortable uh, and to be left alone. But ultimately, Lord, because your uh, spirit is residing in us, we, we want your correction. We want to live lives of grace and mercy because we've received grace and mercy from you. So, Lord, I pray for every believer in this room, every disciple of Jesus, that you would do your work in our heart this morning. For those, Lord, that are here wondering what it means to be a, a follower of God, uh, Lord, I pray that we see your grace in this passage. You're the one who removes the stain of our sin. You're the one who gives us new life. We thank you that you've done that through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for any friends here this morning that are wondering about that, that they would call on your name for salvation. And then, Father, use us in this community, we pray. Use us with classmates at school. Use us with, with neighbors across the street, with business associates. Wherever we find folks that are struggling and hurting, that, that need someone just to, to help them. Father, help us to live that life of worship this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.